The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, how's it going? Good, good. The few, the proud tonight. All right. It's kind of bad weather, I know, but it's a good night to be in the, in the house of the Lord and hear the rain on the roof. Amen. There is some, there's some coffee in the back, there's some cookies in the back, so if you get sleepy, the cookies will make you sleepier, and coffee, coffee will wake you up, it's perfect. Hey, just a quick announcement for you guys, um, this is going to be the last Wednesday night um, in December, uh, we're going to take the, two, the next two Wednesday nights off um, because of holidays and Christmas and New Year's and all that kind of stuff, so um, that goes for Awanas too. Uh, so for the next, yeah, for the next two weeks, we'll be starting back up on January 4th, and we'll be picking it up in First Chronicles. So yeah, don't miss out on, on that, guys. Uh, if you would, open up your Bibles, 2 Kings, and let's, uh, let's pray. And I'm going to, as I kind of always do, I'm going to ask you guys to take about 20 seconds, just quiet your hearts before the Lord, invite him to speak to you tonight. Um, I have no ability to speak life into your soul only to pump your heads full of knowledge, which can turn you into a Pharisee and send you to hell. So um, <clears throat> ask the Holy Spirit to speak living truth. I'm serious. Um, <laughs> uh, ask the Holy Spirit to speak truth into your heart and, and in your life tonight. Father, we're desperate for your kingship tonight in our lives. We're desperate for your rule. God, we ache in our soul. The brokenness of humanity is felt every day. It's felt in our sin. It's felt in our inadequacies. It's felt in our inability to give you our all. It's felt in our inability to, to obey you. It's felt in our idolatry. And Jesus, we need you to be our king tonight. Lord, you are our king, but we pray that you would allow us to see you as that. Lord, that we would find rest in your strong arms, knowing that you are in control of all things. So would you speak through a fool tonight and make much of yourself, Christ. Sit on the throne of this place, sit on the throne of our hearts, sit on the throne of this church. You are our pastor. You are our rabbi. Speak words of truth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm excited about this book. Um, man, what a joy it's been to be in the Old Testament with you guys. Um, for those of you that are joining us, I think most of you are usually here, but for those of you that are joining us, we're doing a series through the Old Testament called Overview of the Old Testament, and we're just attacking the Old Testament at sort of a rapid pace. About three-fourths of your Bible is Old Testament, and it's probably the most neglected piece of the Bible um, by mainstream evangelical Christians. So we're trying to really help you kind of get out of the weeds of, of the Old Testament and understand a little bit more uh, what the big picture themes are. So tonight we're going to tackle the whole book of Second Kings, um, and I'm really excited. You guys excited? Everybody get one of these, okay? This is a little handout. You can follow along if you want to fill in some of the answers to those questions. Um, that's not meant to be schoolwork. It's just meant to help you. If it's distracting, just don't use it. Um, yeah, mine's just not green because I'm not cool like you guys. Uh, mine's just I printed myself, and Mary printed those for you guys, so you get green. Um, mint chocolate chip, actually, would be what I would call that, right? Mint chocolate. Last week was ABC gum. All right, I need to pray again. Okay, no, we're good. So I'm gonna, at the risk of sounding like a complete nerd, um, there's a scene in the movie Lord of the Rings. You guys seen the movie Lord of the Rings? Okay, I know, it's like you're such a nerd. But there is this scene in Lord of the Rings. In, in, in my defense, it was a book before it was a movie. Um, but in this scene, Middle Earth, okay, the world that Tolkien sort of created, and uh, in, in Middle Earth, um, things are not going well. 
Um, you know, this, this bad Lord Sauron is, has come and, and he's basically going to, he's threatening the existence of all of Middle Earth, right? And, and so Gandalf, the gray wizard, has this, uh, this conversation with, uh, with the Lord of the elves and they're, and they're talking like, what are we going to do? Like, Middle Earth seems to be, like, headed towards doom. What's, what are we, what are we going to do? How are we going to combat this evil? And, and it's very dire, and it's very, you know, what, what could possibly happen that would save us from this, this evil to come? And, and uh, Gandalf makes this comment. He says, um, all hope is not lost, for there is still the race of man. Right? There's still this, this mankind, there's this race of men that maybe we can look to for, for some sort of hope. And Lord Elrond, the elf king, he famously responds, he says, he says this, he says, men are weak. Men are weak. He says, it's because of the weakness of men that the ring survived. He says, I was there that day, the day that the strength of men failed. And if you've seen the movie, it goes to this flashback where, where the, the king uh, defeats the enemy. And, and, he, and everything is saved, and he goes up into the mountain to destroy the very core, the very source of evil, but at the last minute, something in the core of his being comes up and keeps him from throwing the ring into the fire. And he puts it around his neck, and it ends up consuming him, and because of that, the entire evil, evil, evil endures and evil thrives. Now, the reason that I think uh, that quote, that men are weak, and then that men were ultimately the cause of the destruction of Middle Earth. The, the reason I think that that's cool isn't just because Tolkien was creative, although he was. The reason I think that's cool is because Tolkien stole that <laughs> from the Bible. Okay, he stole a theme out of the Old Testament scriptures. And, and trust me, Tolkien was very aware of the scriptures. Um, he stole that theme. And that theme is simply this, that mankind is headed for destruction. And that the reason for that destruction is mankind. That the leaders of men will inevitably always fail men. And even though men are capable in, in certain cases of doing great things and rising up against evil and, 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 and destroying terrible things, at the end of the day, man will always self-destruct. He will always lead mankind into a worse place. We have in us this deep-rooted seed of darkness that we cannot seem to shake. Now, what is this sickness that lays in the core of our being? No matter how resolved we are as humans, no matter how advanced we are as humans, no matter how much technology we have, no matter who's in the White House, no matter who is the king, no matter who is the Lord, no matter who is in charge, we are always seemingly coming back to the same problems as humanity. At the core of our being, we are unable to fix ourselves. Now, history has shown us two things about men. Two things about men. The first thing is that men are unable to rule themselves. Okay? We just are. If you don't believe me, pick up a history book. Better yet, pick up this book. Okay? Men are unable to rule themselves. The second thing history teaches us is that men are unable to redeem themselves. So not only do men make things worse when they're in charge, they also are unable to fix the people that lived before them's mistakes. They're unable to lead and they're unable to redeem. Now, Tolkien was not the only one that stole themes from the Bible. He's not the only one that saw these, these grandiose themes that weave their way through scriptures. Uh, another one that saw those was George Lucas. Now, he didn't ascribe it specifically to the scriptures, but I remember reading a quote, and I shared with, this with you guys a while ago, um, I remember reading a quote by, by uh, George Lucas when they were asking him, how did you get the creative uh, thinking for Star Wars? Like this amazing movie, this legacy uh, movie that everyone loves. Where did you get the idea for that? He said, well, when I sat down to write Star Wars, he says, I wasn't trying to write a new story. I was simply trying to write the age-old story. I thought that was so profound, probably more profound than George Lucas realized. See, what he was writing was really the story of all stories. And that story is very resemblant of this story. See, in, in, in George Lucas's story in Star Wars, um, the, the basic concept is that mankind or, or, or the world is sort of headed for destruction. And, and it's headed uh, for destruction because there's this evil force and there's good versus evil. And everything's hanging in the balance, and it seems like there's no hope, and hope is gone. But yet there's one person that can restore hope. Luke Skywalker, right? 
or the one. I mean, every story has that thing, that catalyst, that one person that can restore balance to the universe and bring everything back to the way it is. George Lucas was ripping off the story that God wrote in humanity. He didn't think that up. He was reflecting God's story. Now listen to this. God's story is not creation saving creation. Now, in George Lucas's story, it's about uh, a man rising up to, to heal everything. Uh, in Lord of the Rings, it's about, uh, you know, a hobbit. It's about people fixing people. But in God's story, it's not about creation fixing creation. In God's story, it's the author stepping into his own story to save his own creation. Isn't that cool? In this story, it's the author stepping into his own narrative in order to heal and to fix the story. Now, Kings, 2 Kings specifically, which is, this is kind of a part two to, you'll never guess, 1 Kings. Um, Kings as a whole, which was one book, by the way, not split into two originally, one book. Kings is the story of man's failure to rule. Okay, just like it was last week. That was what 1 Kings was. It's the story of man's failure to rule, man's failure to heal, man's failure to redeem, but specifically to rule. And really, the whole Bible could be, could be considered a story about man's failure to rule. The book of 2 Kings doesn't really start off primarily with the kings, though. And so I want to just spend a few minutes talking about something, something else that, that the first part of the book talks about, and that's the prophets. And we talked about the prophets last week. If, you, if you're interested more in them, um, go back and listen to last week's on the website. Uh, but I just want to briefly touch on something, because the book of 1 Kings ends and 2 Kings starts with another prophet. Okay, so I want to talk about that prophet, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about the kings themselves. Are we good with that? Okay, so Kings starts off, Second Kings starts off with a certain man, and his name was Elisha. Everybody say Elisha. Okay, not to be confused with Elijah. Okay, two different dudes, two different guys. Elisha was the successor of, or the disciple, if you will, of Elijah. Elijah passed the torch from the book of Kings to Second Kings um, to this new prophet, this second prophet, Elisha. And if you're going to get into Kings, you're going to realize that the first eight, eight or nine chapters are ultimately about Elisha. And then his story kind of weaves in and out of the narrative um, in totality. But Elisha, his story starts off by him walking in the footsteps of the prophet Elijah, who did amazing miracles, crazy miracles. And Elisha, at some point, before Elijah's about to be carried off into a, another place, Elisha specifically goes to his master, or his, his, his whatever you want to call him, who, who he looked up to, who he learned from, and he says, hey, give me twice the blessing that you have. Give me twice the ability to perform miracles that you have. Give me twice of the Holy Spirit that, that you possess. And Elijah responds in, the, in this book by saying, well, that's kind of a tall order, but okay, you know, why not? Which is a really cool picture, by the way, of creating disciples. You know, he does twice the things that Elijah did. And here's what's really cool, and you would never know this unless you counted, but in the book of 2 Kings, Elisha does exactly twice the amount of miracles that Elijah does. Elijah does 14. Elisha does, math students, 28, right? That's right, yeah, 28, okay, 14 to 14. Um, really, really interesting. Now, Elijah and Elisha, I just wanted to talk about them a little bit with you guys because my purpose here isn't just to teach you. My purpose is hopefully to teach you how to read these books and how to uh, sort of, how to, what do I do with this stuff? What do we do with these stories? Now, Elisha and Elijah were kind of like in a league of their own in regards to prophets. So you think of prophets, a lot of times you think of Isaiah, you think of Jeremiah, that were really mostly the mouthpiece of God. But Elisha and Elijah were sort of like if I can sound like a nerd again, they just like walked around like Jedi Knights or something. I mean, if you've read it, you know what I'm saying. It's like they just walk around, they yield and command the power of God. The miraculous just happens over and over. I'll give you some examples. This is some of the things that Elisha did and just a few of them. Um, some of them are so bizarre, uh, I won't even talk about them. Uh, the, first, the first one he does is, is right after Elijah um, leaves and passes on some of his power to Elisha, he, he takes the garment from Elijah, he rolls it up, slaps the Jordan River with it, and it parts, okay? It's like Jedi stuff, right? Just saying. Um, then he, he heals some, some water, he literally heals the water source uh, for Israel. Uh, then he, he resurrects a child from the dead, this is all in Kings. He heals a leper. 
Then he causes leprosy on another person, smites an army with blindness, restores that same army with blindness. And then this is the best one. After they bury Elisha in his grave, a man dies and then falls into the grave. His dead body touches Elisha's bones and he is resurrected. Not making it up. It's in the Bible. Go read it, okay? It's in 2 Kings. This really happens. Elisha and Elijah seemed to just wield sort of this power of the Holy Spirit, and they walked in the miraculous that was absolutely insane. And and the question that I sort of had as I was looking at this kind of stuff and reading through 2 Kings is, what do I do with that? Like, as as a Christian in 2016, what do I do when I sit down to read my devotion in the morning and I read that some dead guy fell in, touched Elisha's bones, and sprang to life? What do I do with that? How do we read that stuff? So I just wanted to quickly kind of give you guys a few tools, a few few things to think about when you read specifically the miraculous in the Old Testament. So here's just a couple couple things. Um, Firstly, consider this when you think about the miraculous in the the Old Testament. Uh, Firstly, the miraculous is nothing to God. It's nothing to God. Uh, That sounds really funny and kind of weird and bizarre to us. Like, man, how could that happen? And how could Elisha part water? And how could he do all that? How could he raise someone from the dead? To God, he's like, that's not really that weird. The funny thing is, is we we live in a miraculous world. We live in a supernatural world where all the time miraculous and supernatural things are taking place. The funny thing is, is it's just things that we're not accustomed to that seem weird. So ultimately, Elisha is like this little picture of heaven walking around and everywhere he goes, not because he's special, but because he carries with him the creator of all things, powerful things happen. And little snapshots and glimpses of heaven happen as he's walking around and and for specific reasons. What's amazing to me is not that the miraculous happens in the Old Testament. What's amazing to me is that it didn't happen more. Because God is a miraculous God, amen? He's a miraculous God. The second thing to think about, and this is, this is key, is that the miracles or the miraculous in the Old Testament, they were never done for anything usually other than the point of repentance. Okay, Elisha didn't just, just do random things to do random things. He usually did it for a very specific reason. And he did it in hopes that the power of God would be seen through him, which would lead Israel as a nation to repentance. Um, Jesus ultimately did a, a lot of the same things. As he walked around and did the miraculous in his time, he, he would do crazy events. But he didn't do those things just to do them. He didn't do them just to show off. He didn't do them just because he was bored. He didn't do them just because he was God. He did them specifically to try to work repentance into someone's heart. But Jesus also gave us a warning about the miraculous when he did that. He said, beware of people that seek a sign. Because signs don't change the heart. They don't. You know what they make you do? Want more signs. You know, so Jesus said, watch out for that, okay? But ultimately, the point of the signs and the miraculous in the Old Testament were to hopefully change the heart of Israel by displaying the power of God. Now, did it work? Usually not. But that was the intention. And, and this is really, number three, this is the most important thing to think about when you're reading the miraculous uh, in the Old Testament. And this number, the, number three is this. The miraculous prepared the way for the miraculous one. Okay, Uh, everything that was done in the Old Testament that was miraculous was a symbol and a picture of the miraculous one, the Christ. Now, I noticed something as I was reading through 2 Kings, and that was this, like, familiarity. Like, a lot of the miracles that these prophets did were so much like what Jesus did. Do you think that was an accident? And remember, Jesus and Israel in Jesus' day knew these stories, They were familiar, much more familiar than we are with these stories. They would have known the miraculous deeds of Elisha and Elijah. And as Jesus is going about doing his ministry, he is specifically doing miracles that tie him back to these men. Why would he do that? Because he's, first of all, showing Israel that he is part of God's bigger narrative. He's showing Israel that, look, I wield the same power that was wielded by the prophets of old. I walk in the same authority, the same power, the same miraculous abilities as the prophets that you all look to as the mouthpiece of God. Now, was Jesus just a prophet? No, he was much more than that. He was God himself. But he did miraculous deeds specifically like the prophets to tie himself back to that. Prophets were the men whom God did miracles through. Jesus was God himself doing miracles. Does that make sense? God himself 
doing miracles. Now, that's all I'm going to say about the prophets because we got a lot of work to do. So, here's what I want to do. I want to focus now on the kings. And here's kind of the outline uh, for, for what we're going to look at, uh, specifically with the kings. I want to look at three different types of kings. So, if you're taking notes, three different types of kings. The first is the failed kings. And there's plenty of those. The failed kings. The second I want to look at are the good kings. The good kings. And there's a few of those. And, and then thirdly, I want to look at the king of kings. Okay? The failed kings, the good kings, and the king of kings. So let's turn our attention now from the prophets into what the majority of this book is really about. And that is the kings. Now, the track record, let's start with the failed kings. Okay? The track record of the kings was not very good. Okay, if there was a, a, a like a baseball card that, that had the, the stats of all of the kings, like you'd be pretty unimpressed with them. Uh, it looks something like this. Each uh, kingdom, if you guys remember last week, kingdom was split after Solomon into two, the north and the south. You get points if you know. The north was called what? Israel, which is confusing. Who knows why? The south is called what? Judah. Okay, good job. Two of you got the first one. Um, so two kingdoms, uh, in, in those two kingdoms, after Solomon, each kingdom had 20 kings, 20 and 20, very symmetrical, very type A, you know, I think God liked the tidiness of that, each one had 20 kings, and out of those 20 kings, um, you ready for this, the, king, uh, the kingdom in the south had eight out of 20 that were considered by the author good kings, okay, so eight were good in Judah, and 12 were bad, eh, it's not, not terrible, you ready for this one? And the north, there were 20 kings, and zero of them were considered good kings by the author's own words. None of them in the north were considered good kings. Some of them did okay or decent things, but none of them were ultimately considered to be good kings. Uh, not a great track record by and large. That basically means that 32 of Israel's 40 kings after Solomon were wicked kings, did not walk in God's way, did not live in, in a way that was honoring to God. Now, how were the kings measured? This is kind of important. And, and there's, a, there's a very symmetrical, uh, a very pattern-like way that the author sort of decides whether the king uh, was a good king or, or was a bad king. Uh, and, and those are three basic things that each king is measured by. The first is this, did the king worship the God of Israel alone? Okay. Did they worship the God of Israel alone? And, and trust me, that you think that would be easy? It wasn't. That seemed to be the biggest tripping point for all the kings. The second thing that the, that the author measures them by is, did they reform the worship of God from idolatry? So not only did they personally themselves lead the, the nation in, in rightful worship, but did they also fix what the guy before him screwed up? Did they go back and get rid of the idolatry that had been sown into the country by Solomon and so many other men? And then thirdly, did they rule in a way that was in line with the law of God? Okay, did they celebrate Passover feast? Did, did, did they actually heed what God's law was? That was basically the grounds for the covenant that God made with Israel. Those were the three things. Worship, reform, and rule. Worship, reform, and rule. Now, another interesting thing that you'll notice about Kings, which I'm hoping you'll go read it, is why does the author always connect that king as he's deciding whether it's a good king or a bad king? The author always connects them back to someone in their lineage. So, for example, when a king was bad in the north, they would say, so-and-so walked in the footsteps of his father, Ahab. Even though that might have been his great, 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 great grandfather, they still instantly pin his failure and his sin to Ahab. And if it was in the south and they walked in a way that, was, that wasn't pleasing to God, the author would instantly pin them to uh, Rehoboam, who was one of the first bad kings in the south. Super interesting. And if a king was good, they would say he walked in the ways of his father, David. Now, in our Western minds, that seems so incredibly unfair. <laughs> You're going to blame Ahab, who was a terrible king, the worst king. You're going to blame Ahab for what some guy did 200, 300 years later down the road in Israel? And God would say, yes. <laughs> we have a really hard time with that in our Western culture because we think that everything stops with our parents. Half of us don't even talk to our parents, let alone our grandparents or our great-grandparents. Most of us don't know our lineage. Most of us don't know where we came from. Uh, most of us don't stay in touch with our relatives. And most of us don't think twice about who our great-great-grandfather was or what bloodline we came through. 
That's a very Western way of thinking, but that was not the Middle Eastern way of thinking. And it's not the way most of the ancient world has thought. Most of the ancient world paid lots of attention to what lineage you came through, and God did the same thing, and he always tied them back to who uh, originally their bloodline came from. Now, why would God do that? Why would the author of Kings do that? Because of this. We talked about it in Genesis, too. Because... um, As human beings, you are automatically born into a failed lineage. Who do you trace back to, ultimately? Adam. There is one man that everyone in this room is ultimately represented by, and his name is Adam. He is the father of us all, and the author is reminding us that, hey, no matter what you do or what you think you are, the genetics, the DNA that is at the core of your being traces back to one man, and that man was Adam. And that man failed miserably. And you think, he was a, you think he was a joke? Well, you'd do the same thing. If you were Adam, you would have done the same thing. And the bigger picture there, the bigger narrative of the scripture is God is essentially saying, you are either in two people groups. You were either of the line of Adam, or as the New Testament author proclaims, you're of the line of Christ. Pick. Which lineage do you want? Do you want to walk in Christ's family or do you want to walk in Adam's family? That's <laughs> creepy. That's a creepy show. I, I don't want to walk in Adam's family. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't plan that. Um, it is in your bloodline to be failed leaders. It is in your bloodline traced back to your father, Adam. Now, one other thing that's qu- interesting quickly I want to just touch on is why, why did the north, and if you read the book, you'll see this, why did the north never have a good king? Why did they never have a good king? We have eight good kings in the south and zero in the north. What is the reason for that? Well, I just want to suggest two quick things that I think possibly we could learn from um, that made the northern tribes um, not very successful in the area of reform. One was this. Uh, they tried to make worship more palatable. Okay, and let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, where was Jerusalem? Was it in the north or in the south? It was in the south. Okay, it was in the southern kingdom. You realize that when you go to Israel. There's a, there, there, it's very much in the south. Jerusalem was the heart of the southern kingdom. So when the kingdom split, the north no longer had Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the place where you worshiped God. It's where the temple was. It's where the priestly line lived. It's where sacrifices were brought. It's where Israel would pilgrim to annually to go and to be in the holy place of God. And when the kingdom split, the north had to make a decision. What do we do? We no longer have this spiritual holy place to go to. So what did they do? They created their own. They made uh, the two specific temples, and, and one's in Dan, and I can't remember where the other one is, Bethel. Um, and, and in those temples that they made, they put pagan gods, they put golden calves, and they recreated, uh, they ultimately tried to recreate what Jerusalem was. But that, that wasn't what I want to press on. I think where they went wrong, firstly, was they created a, they created a system of religion based off convenience. It specifically says in the scriptures, hey, rather than going all the way to the south, like God had intended them to, and making this pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem, why don't we just make our own temple? Let's just make it. It's convenient. We can go right to it. We don't need the Levites. We can make our own priesthood up here in the north. We can worship the way we want. And I think that was a detriment to them. Because they never had the reset of having to come out of their homeland into the south and actually come into the city of God and see the Lord in the temple. Now, my my application on this is, is simply this. Be careful of trying to make Christianity palatable for yourself. I was having a conversation with a guy yesterday and we were just just talking about the danger uh, of how simple we've tried to make Christianity. And instead of really truly getting into the word and, and trying to mine the truth for ourselves and wanting to hear, like we talked about last week, the prophetic voice of God and, and, and spending time in prayer and really pursuing the Lord through relationship with hours of time with God in our week and in our month, instead we've just condensed him into these little bite-sized, hot pocket-like, vitamin-esque Christian things, which in and of themselves are not evil podcasts, devotionals, all great things. But the problem is, is those things turn your heart from God himself to those things. The, the reason this got brought up is because my, my, my friend, I noticed like he always listens to podcasts, but I said, when was the last time he prayed? 
You're like, it's been a little while. It's interesting how quickly our tastes can be turned from actually seeking the living God himself in true and honest and raw relationship to a pre-chewed, force-fed Christian version of something. Whether it be true or not, it doesn't matter. Don't ever forsake the, 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 the reality of seeking God, having to hike to Jerusalem to go and to find God. It's not a bad thing. And I think, unfortunately, in our consumeristic millennial culture, where everything is about simplicity and ease and saving time, we forgot the beauty of seeking God through hard work, of seeking God through labor and prayer, and seeking God through the scriptures. I've had a little bit of a turn in studying even for these teachings. Um, For a while there, I just didn't see how I could possibly have time to read the entire book and come up with a sermon. So for a while there, I was just reading bits and pieces and and, and reading summations and things. And the last few books, I said, forget it. I'm reading the whole book. It doesn't take that long. It's a few hours. So I've, I've just taken the time to read the book. And you know what's amazing? God speaks to me. Even without commentaries, even without summations, even without a teaching about it, God can speak through the raw and, and just the, 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 the natural form of his word. You don't always have to go to Bible teaching. You don't always have to go to podcast or devotion or fridge magnet or bumper sticker. Find it for yourself. Mine it for yourself and let those things be helpful in times that are dry. Amen? I just thought about that. I'm like, Israel, they, they forsook meeting with God in a city because of laziness, convenience. And they isolated themselves ultimately in their own folly in the north. Now, there's a theme that ties all of the failed kings together in both kingdoms. And that theme is this, and this is in your handout. That theme is this, it's one word. It's passivity. The demise of the failed kings of Israel was really surmised in one word, and that is passivity. The reality of sin and idolatry is that it's not just wished away. Our default setting as human beings is to not worship God. You are not prone or inclined to worship God. In fact, everything in your being, because you are in that DNA lion of Adam, wants to worship anything and everything but God. Okay, that's why our minds have to be transformed. That's why we have to be reborn. So your natural bent will always be passivity. And the kings, largely, the biggest thing that they screwed up was just not doing anything at all to try to keep their people worshiping the true and living God. There's two kinds of sins that the Bible talks about, uh, if I can broad brush a little bit, and those are sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of, of commission are sins where you actually commit a sin and, and your hand is the thing doing it. You go out of your way to do something that is contrary to the nature and the law of God. Sins of omission are where you just don't do what you know you were supposed to do. The sins of passivity, the sin that Adam made when he didn't step in and lead his wife in righteousness and say, no, we will not choose sin over God. That was a sin of omission. Well, Adam didn't eat the fruit at first. Oh, he did at some point. And it started with the passivity of man and man's inability to lead, to step up and do what was necessary. That was the core demise of the kings of Israel, this passivity, sins of omission. Many of the kings did a lot to bring idols into Israel, but even more of the kings did very little to try to get them out. And there's reasons for that. There's reasons for that. Why was it so hard for the kings to remove uh, idolatry from, from their land? The primary one, removing idols means war. You understand that when you remove idol, whether, idols, from, whether it's from your personal life or whether it's a king removing it from a nation, you are literally ripping flesh. You are ripping things that are intertwined into the core of your heart. When you pull something that is an idol out of your life, it's not just like deciding to throw out your non-Christian music. If only it was that simple, right? It's not as simple as just getting rid of your movie collection. It is intertwined and, and curled around every single part of your heart, and you have to rip that thing out, and there is blood, sweat, and tears. It is war. You make war on idolatry. It's the only way that it goes away. And the kings, 32 of them, were not willing to make war on idolatry. They were not willing to. They wanted to make war on the Assyrians, to make war on the Babylonians, to make war on the Egyptians, to make war on anything and everything other than the real true enemy, and that is their want to make something God that isn't God. It's hard work. It's swimming upstream. And and there's a specific reason for that. 
The specific reason for that is not, not only that we love our idols, but also our idols make us cultural heroes. Let me explain what I mean by that. In our culture, it, it is praised to be an idolatry. You know that? In Christianity, maybe it's not, but in our culture, by and large, you are praised for living in idolatry. If you choose to leave your, leave your husband or your wife because you want to pursue your career, and you choose to divorce them and, and, and sacrifice your kids and your wife or your husband on the altar of, of your career, your, your nation, your culture will applaud you. They will applaud you. If you choose to watch into, walk into an abortion clinic and, and, and have the baby destroyed in your womb because it's getting in the way of your life that you wanted to plan, your, your culture will applaud you. You're so brave. You're so brave to walk in your idolatry. It is intermingled and, and, and intertwined in every single part of who we are and our culture makes it extremely hard. And what that means is we make war. Not with the abortion clinics, not with non-Christians, not with liberals, not with Democrats. They're the mission field. We make war with our flesh, right? We make war with the thing that is loving things that are not God. We rip them out at whatever cost it takes. Now, what should the 32 failed kings point us to? What's the lesson of, and, and you can go and read about them. It's story after story after story. I wasn't even going to try to go through all of them. You guys would have been so bored. What is the 32 kings, these incredible stories of these kings that failed? What, what does their life point us to? Well, it is a constant reminder of our nature apart from God's intervention. It is a constant reminder of, of, of this. Listen, either Jesus is in control of your life and he is transforming you into his image, and it's painful and it's slow, and, and we have all kinds of issues with that. It takes a long time. Either Jesus is in control of your life, transforming you into his image, or you are ruling your life right into the ground. That's the reality. Israel went one of two ways. It never stayed in the middle. You know that? It was either going into idolatry or it was coming out of idolatry. There was never a, a middle ground. Either they were following God or they were not following God. You notice there's not, 20, there's not 32 bad kings and four good kings and then four that were just nothing. No, there was eight kings that actually fought the idolatry of Israel and 32 kings that didn't. Are you fighting or not? Is Jesus transforming your life or are you transforming your life right into the ground? Because if you are ruling your kingdom, it will fail. Absolutely fail. But not all the kings were bad. Okay, not all the kings were bad. Most of them were. Um, but in reality, a lot of the kings, especially in Judah, had great stories. And I gotta encourage you, I don't have time to get into all of them, but there are stories that you have to go read about some of the good kings of Israel that fought to lead their nations in righteousness and in an authentic worship of God. I'm gonna look at just two really quickly uh, and then we're gonna move on. Uh, one of them's name was Hezekiah. I want you to write that down because I want you guys to go read the story of Hezekiah. That's your homework. An amazing story, an epic story of a king who, who didn't sit by passively, but a king who stood up and did what needed to be done for his country, okay? And what Hezekiah was known for was a couple of things. Uh, first of all, Hezekiah lived during probably the worst possible time that an Israel king could live. Israel's reign was during the time of the northern exile. Now, hopefully I don't get lost in the weeds on this, but follow me. The north and the south were both exiled, but the north was exiled first. They were exiled first. And the south had a front row seat. Judah, Hezekiah, the king, had a front row seat to watching the other half of their nation and be ripped out of their homeland with their homes burned and their people made into slaves by the Assyrians. And Hezekiah, you can imagine, it would be like World War II, right? You're sitting in the Americas watching your number one ally, uh, Europe, be literally invaded by Nazi Germany. And you're thinking to yourself, the famous line, it's not going to be long till we're in this thing. They are attacking our closest allies. They will attack us next. The Assyrians marched on the northern kingdom, sacked the northern kingdom, exiled the northern kingdom, made slaves out of their women and children and burned their cities. And here is King Hezekiah in the south just waiting for them to come. 
They're coming. Here it goes. What's going to happen? And in Israel, it was really cool because what Hezekiah did in preparation, this is a side note, in preparation for what he knew what was coming, he dug a very long tunnel. It was like three miles or something, a super long tunnel under the foundation of Israel in order to bring water into the city so that they didn't have to go outside the gates for their water. And we in Israel, when we went with a heritage trip, we got to walk through the tunnel. And there's water in there and you're just in there forever. It's just it's the coolest thing. And you could see all the little chisel marks. But anyways, Hezekiah made preparations for that. So here comes Assyria. They march on the southern kingdom. They've already taken out the northern kingdom. And King Sennacherib, okay, which is an epic name if you are a sandwich at KFC. Uh, I don't know that I would name my king son that. Um, isn't there a, a snacker? Isn't that what it's called? A KFC? Snacker rib? God, that was gold. That was cool. KFC? Okay. Anyways. Um, Sennacherib, the king, you'll never forget that now, right? Sennacherib. Uh, he, he, he was the king of Assyria, and he, he comes to King Hezekiah, and he, he's basically like, hey man, here, here, are we, are we going to do this? Here we go. And, and, and King Hezekiah says, hey, what do I have to do to keep you from doing what you did to the north? Okay, and I should say, by the way, Hezekiah was, Hezekiah was a great king. He removed the idols. Um, he, he, he got rid of all of the idols in the high places. He, he, he moved Israel and reformed their religious system back to God. But now they're in this terrible state. And as King Sennacherib comes to the gates of um, the, 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 the tribe in the south, Hezekiah basically says, what do I have to do to keep you from taking us out? And King Sennacherib says, well, give me uh, this and this and this and much amount of money. So Hezekiah's like, yeah, sure, whatever you want, man. I'll give you all the money you want. Just don't do to us what you did to the north. So he goes, he takes all the gold from the temple. He gives it to King Sennacherib, this Assyrian king. And unfortunately, uh, Sennacherib doesn't honor his word and decides that he's going to march on the city anyways. So literally, toe-to-toe, battle is about to happen the city of Jerusalem is completely surrounded. All of the cities in the outskirts of Jerusalem have already been taken over. And this, this conversation happens uh, between uh, Rabshakeh, which is the messenger for King Sennacherib, uh, and, and Hezekiah. And basically the Assyrians are just saying this. They're taunting them out loud saying, your gods cannot save you. Your gods cannot save you. Egypt isn't going to save you. Look, you've torn, down your, you've torn down your altars in the high places, which were to false gods. You, you've torn down your altars. Your God doesn't care about you. And they taunt the Lord. So Hezekiah, this man of God, he, he, he has a decision, decision to make. Either he can passively sit down and let his, his country be taken out, or he can seek the Lord. And he seeks the Lord in prayer. And he goes to God and he basically pleads, God, take this guy out for your name's sake. This guy is taunting you. He's not mocking Israel. He's mocking you. Basically, I mean, you got to read it. Uh, basically, he comes to the walls of Jerusalem and he says, I dare you. I will give you a thousand horses and I dare your God to give you riders to put on them. I mean, he gets in the face of these guys, attacking the living God. And God's not having it. And because of Hezekiah's humility to go to the Lord in prayer, the angel of the Lord comes and in the night smites 185,000 of Sennacherib's men and they go home. They go home. And, and I'll tell you what, historically, if you look back at the history of it, there is absolutely no reason why the southern kingdom shouldn't have been exiled. Now, of course, the Assyrians don't put that in their history books. <laughs> 185,000 of our men just died Okay, they're not going to put that in there. They don't add things like that to history books. But historically, it happened. And, and, and Israel in the south was saved. And because of that, they had another couple of hundred years before their exile. So what does Hezekiah's story teach us? Hezekiah's story ultimately teaches us this, and that even the good kings, listen, even the good kings, even the kings who reformed the worship and burned the altars in the high places and sought the Lord in times of war and delivered the nation through humility. And even the good kings could not keep Israel from crashing and burning because it wasn't very long before a bad king came. Hezekiah couldn't live forever. His successor comes, brings idolatry back into the nation. Another good king comes that I wish we had time to talk about named Josiah. 
digs up the book of Deuteronomy, reads it to the whole nation of Israel. They're convicted. Their heart is smitten by the word of God. They make all of these reforms. But then Josiah dies and another king comes and brings idolatry. And ultimately, the sad end of the book of 2 Kings is just like in the north, exile. Because they cannot turn from their idolatry, because they cannot serve the Lord, Babylon, the the world-ruling empire, marches on Israel, rips them out of their homeland, Judah, I'm sorry, rips them out of their homeland, destroys the temple, burns the walls, burns the cities, kills the leaders, takes people like Daniel, young men, young women, rip them out, make them slaves, take them out of the country, the only people that they left the only people they left in the south were the poorest of the poorest of the poor to tend the vineyards so that the land wouldn't be useless. That's all that was left. And that's the end of the book. And Lord, we just pray. Oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, sorry, that was a bad joke. Isn't that depressing? So depressing. Like, that's the end of the book. I mean, both kingdoms are, it, are they're exiled. There's no hope. There's no hope for Israel. No hope. Now, there's, there's two things that, that the end of kings and, and the exiles um, posture thematically us for. Okay, there's two things. The first thing is, is the next chapter that we're going to go to. Um, now, Chronicles kind of revisits a lot of this stuff, so we'll kind of rehash a lot of these things. But, but the next season of, of scripture that we move into is what's called post-exilic. Everybody say post-exilic. That was messy. Try it again. Post-exilic. Good job. That's a very important combination of words, okay? That is all the history that took place in Israel after the exile. Post-exilic, okay? Uh, All of the things that we're going to look at after Chronicles ultimately are post-exilic books. Uh, And what that means is it's, 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 it's the history of Israel after they've been ripped out of their homeland. Okay, so that postures us for that, and we get to see God sort of redeem and, and bring people like uh, um, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah to come in and try to rebuild the city and all those kinds of things, which is exciting. But here's the, the bigger thing that the exile postures us for in the Bible. You ready? The king of kings. The failure of man to rule postured man in the perfect position to bring onto the stage the king of kings. Not, not just the king that could fix a few things. Not just Hezekiah, not just Josiah, but the king of kings. The king that the prophets spoke of. Jesus. I want to ask you this question. If, if Jesus was the true king, okay, which if you've studied the Bible, you know. Jesus is the true king of Israel. As he said that he was. If Jesus was the true king, then why isn't he on the throne in Israel right now? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is the true king. Why is he not ruling and reigning in Israel? Well, here's the short answer. Uh, and and this, 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 this kind of helps make sense. When you go back now and you read uh, the, 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 the gospels where the disciples are so confused about what Jesus is doing, this is why. Because they, they, they were waiting for the king to come. And here's Jesus and he's the king, but he's not doing kingly things. He, he's talking about how he's gonna die. Kings don't talk about how they're gonna die die he, he's talking he's not talking about overthrowing near he's not talking about overthrowing rome he's not talking about the kingdom of israel he's talking about some other kingdom some ethereal kingdom that's somewhere in heaven if jesus is the king well, they were so confused about what he came to do the kingdom that he came to rule if jesus is the king why is he not on the throne of israel right now and the answer this the short answer is this jesus was not the king that man wanted he was the king that man needed Okay, Jesus is not the king that you want. He's the king that you need. He did not come to do what Israel wanted him to do. He came to do what Israel needed him to do. And not just Israel, but the Gentiles, you and I. Now what I want to do quickly, just in the last little piece of our time, is I want to soak in the, 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 these thoughts. What made Jesus a better king? Why is Jesus the king of kings? Why is he the king of kings? So five quick reasons, and you might write these down because I'd love for you to pray through them and think about them later. Five reasons that Jesus is the better king. The first one is this. Jesus is the only king to truly fix his kingdom. To truly fix his kingdom. You see, Jesus was aware of, of the issue that Israel had, and the issue that Israel had was not lack of chariots, Not lack of money, not lack of land, not even lack of good leadership. 
See, Jesus knew that the deeper issue with Israel was the hearts of the people in Israel. And he knew if he was going to set up a true kingdom and be an eternal king and be the best king, he had to deal with the issue, and the issue was the heart of men. You see, every four years, we hear someone come and say how they're going to fix our country, make it great again, right? Uh, or whatever the slogan is. I mean, it's, it's, everyone's promised it. We're going to make it better, we're going to make it better, we're going to make it better, we're going to make it better. Listen to me, I hate to pop your bubble. They're not going to make it better. You know why? Because they cannot fix the heart of men. And man is the problem. You know why America has problems? Because people have problems. And America is made up of problems, or of people. Do you know why heritage has problems? Because heritage is made up of people. And people have problems. And the only way you can truly fix a nation is to fix the people. And no politician can do that. Jesus steps onto the scene and chooses to reign a kingdom that is not just simply reformed or rearranged. He wants to rule a kingdom that is reborn with new hearts, hearts that desire him. And what that means for you and me, the so what of that is that we now are ruled by not an iron fist, but by love. Because God has made our hearts to want him. So God doesn't have to come and smite us. God doesn't have to send the Assyrians to exile us. He may bring things into our life to, to, to sanctify us, but ultimately we obey him because we love him because he's given us a soft heart and on that heart has written his word. It's the only way a kingdom can truly thrive is if the people are fixed and that's what Jesus does. The second reason Jesus is a better king is that Jesus is the most generous king to ever live. He's the most generous king to ever live. See, Jesus not only died for you, he not only gave every ounce of his blood and absorbed the wrath of God for you, that's not all that he did. What he did for you and for me was also to live for us. He didn't just die for his, our sins, he lived the perfect life and then generously gave us his perfect life. Every perfect thing that Jesus did, he did so that when God looks at you and looks at me, he sees that perfection. God doesn't see your sin, your failures, your shortcomings. He sees Jesus' perfect life. And Jesus gave you that life and imputes it to you and covers you with it. Here's what that looks like. So when you're, here, when you're feeling guilt and shame about how you're not measuring up and how God can't possibly love you because of what you just did or just what you just thought or what you just felt, here's what you tell the enemy. Now, you don't understand, Satan. I fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. You don't understand, Satan. I was hung on a cross by men and I had so much love and compassion for them that I actually prayed for them. Now, you don't understand, Satan. I, 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 actually, I actually walk in perfection with the Spirit of God. I, I started the church. What, what am I talking about? When, when Satan comes and tries to, to heap condemnation, you tell him what Jesus did because what Jesus did is what you did. And you didn't do it, but God gave you his perfection. Jesus gave you his perfection. When God sees you, he sees Jesus' perfect life. You tell Satan what Jesus did, and you tell him you did it, because it might as well be that way, because our generous God has given us freely of his good works and imputed us to us those good works. He's the most generous king to ever live. You see, most kings live in leisure, in a position where they're separated from their people. Kings live up here, and the rest of the people live down here. But that's not what our God did. What did our king do? He stepped out of his position of power and comfort. He stepped off the throne of heaven and stepped into the muck and the mire of the sinful world that we live in. He's a king that dwelt among his people, that put on flesh, that put on brokenness, that put on achiness, that put on everything that we feel and experience so that he could save us. He's a generous king. And he's a generous king because his kingdom is not limited to Israel. His kingdom extended to every Gentile in Medford, Oregon, and to the ends of the earth. He's a generous king. Number three, he's a better king because he binds our enemies. As you read the book of Kings, you will see king after king after king constantly fighting enemies. 
Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, so on and so forth. Israel had no shortage of enemies, but they could never seem to fully secure the borders of Israel. Never could do it, even now. Not secure. Not secure. But Jesus has bound our enemies forever. On the cross, he said, it's finished. Your enemies are done. They're conquered. It's over. There is peace in his kingdom because he has conquered death. So we no longer have to live in fear. And let me tell you guys, if you are living in fear, ask yourself, who's your king? If you're living in fear, it's probably because you're living in this kingdom. If you're living in his kingdom, you have nothing to fear because he's conquered every enemy that we have. Number four, Jesus is the greater king because Jesus erected the eternal temple. It was the king's job to facilitate the temple. Okay, the priest's job were to, to do the temple work, but the king's job was to make sure that the temple was safe, that it was, that it was outfitted, that it was, that it was taken care of, and under the rule of the kings, the temple was ultimately a place of idolatry. It was broken, it was defunded, it was in despair, it was raped of all of its fi- financial uh, goods and ultimately destroyed and burnt. That's what happened to the temple under the reign of the kings of Israel. Now, Jesus, the better king, has created an eternal temple, a temple that is not made with hands, but is made of living stones, and those living stones are you and I. A temple that will carry on into eternity, a temple that does not uh, rust, a temple that does not fade, a temple that cannot be burned by the Romans, cannot be destroyed by the Babylonians, an eternal temple. So what? What does, that, what does that mean? What that means is, is that we can access the presence of God anywhere, at any time. No sacrifice is needed because our king has become the sacrifice. No priest is needed because our priest has become, or our king has become the priest. No journey to Jerusalem is needed because we only have to look within our hearts and God is there, dwelling within us. You are the temple of God. He's the better king. And lastly, fifthly, he's the better king because Jesus brings eternal security and dwelling for his people forever. This is something that the Israel kings could not deliver. They could not deliver an eternal lineage past them themselves. There's actually, I think it's Hezekiah, but there's this, this funny little verse that I would love to look at, but no time, where, where uh Hezekiah is, is dying and he prays to the Lord, would, would you save me? And, and God, through another prophet, tells him that, the, the, that Israel's gonna go into exile. And he says, no, don't, don't do it. And God says, okay, it won't be in your generation. And he's like, oh, okay. Literally, Hezekiah's like, oh, well, that's okay. It's, it's, not, it's not gonna be my generation. That's the short-sightedness of, of a human king. Yeah, as long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime, I'm fine. That's not how our King Jesus thinks. He thinks about your eternal security and well-being, and he has set up for you a house in heaven that will never go away. He has set up for you an eternal inheritance in heaven, an eternal home. He is our security. And I want to ask you guys this. When you look at your life, having said all of that, When you look at your life, does it look like a citizen of that kingdom or does it look like a citizen of this kingdom? That's the picture that Kings is painting for you. Is this the kingdom that you want, second Kings, where men fail you and lead you to destruction, where you're exiled, where the temple is burned and destroyed? Is that the kingdom that you wanna live in or do you wanna live in the kingdom of Christ? He's the greater king, amen? Guys, stand with me really quick. I'm just gonna close it out by reading something to you guys out of Revelation. And I just wanna, I want you to bow your heads and just take this in. Just hear this. Then I saw heaven opened up and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. 
On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword that which to strike, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He said, write down, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Father, that is what we look to. The King of Kings, not hanging on a cross, in weakness, but coming in strength to rule an eternal kingdom that cannot be broken. Where tears are wiped away and every thirst is quenched and we are warmed by the sun of your eternal glory, Jesus, as you glow in the center of heaven. God, we want that kingdom. We want your kingdom. We want your rule. And so, God, now we just ask that you would give us the strength by the Spirit to submit ourselves unto your rule and walk in the freedom that is to be found in your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a better king. And pray that we would remember that every moment of every day. When we love you and we thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Um, Don't forget, next two Wednesdays, no church. We'll be back January 4th.